1915, uh, Winston Churchill experienced uh, really what was probably the worst leadership failure in his entire career. He became the British first Lord of the Admiralty in his mid-30s, <clears throat> and he led a naval campaign in the middle of World War I that if it had been successful, likely would have ended the war much sooner than it actually ended. Uh, the British and the French troops were deadlocked with the Germans on the Western front of the war, and Churchill had a brilliant idea to flank the Germans, to send British and French naval troops up around through the Dardanelles, up through the, uh, the Black Sea, and to come across on the eastern side and uh, essentially force the Germans to fight on the western front and the eastern front at the same time to divide their attention. And if it had been successful, it probably would have ended the war at that point. Instead, it was a devastating failure because as the British and the French began to make their way up by sea towards the Black Sea, they became deadlocked as to who would be in charge of the attack. And the Navy and the infantry could never get on the same page in terms of who was in charge. And so as they fought with each other, the enemy reinforced their position, and by the time all of it was said and done, every inch that the British had wanted to take remained in enemy hands. Over a quarter of a million Allied troops were killed in that process, all because they could not figure out who was in charge. And that same failure can happen in the church. Disagreements over who should be in charge have caused many churches to split or frankly, to die. And it's hurt the reputation of Jesus in, in communities all across the country. As we look at Colossians chapter one together this morning, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. I want you to see what the Apostle Paul has to say about who is in charge of the church. We're in a section of Colossians where the Apostle Paul is confronting a heresy that was, was uh, invading the church at Colossae that sought to demote Jesus. Jesus had a place, but not the supreme place. It put Jesus in second place. It put Jesus off of the throne. And Paul writes to confront that false ideology by presenting a portrait of who Jesus actually is. And we saw last week in chapter one, verses 15 through 17, that Paul presents Jesus, first of all, as Lord of creation, because all things were made through him, all things were made for him, and all things are sustained by him. But now in chapter one, verses 18 through 20, Paul is going to rule out any ambiguity over the leadership and authority of the church because he is going to say that not only is Jesus Lord of creation, but Jesus is Lord of the church. And that's the big idea this morning that we're gonna see from the text. If you walk away with nothing else, I want you to walk away with this idea that Jesus is Lord of the church. We see that in Colossians chapter one. I want you to turn with me and look at verse 18. It says, he is, that is Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. Just circle or underline that phrase, the head of the body, the head of the body. Now that, that word head has two different senses here in the text. First of all, it means that Jesus is the fountainhead of the church. That means that the church finds its origin in Jesus. If you 
do research on other world religions, whether it's Hinduism or, or uh, Buddhism or Islam, you'll find that every other world religion finds its origin in a human man, a, a person, right? Whether it's uh, Muhammad or, or Joseph Smith or someone like that. But the Bible says that the church finds its origin in Jesus. He is the fountainhead uh, of the church. The church is not founded by man, but by Jesus himself. Isn't this what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Hebrews chapter 2 uses a very similar word when, when it says that Jesus is the author of our faith. He is the one Uh, Paul says uh, this way, he's the one who began a good work in you and will see it through to completion. So I think it's very important for us to realize that when you gather with the church of Jesus, you are not gathering with a man-made church, but the church of Jesus. He is the fountainhead of the church, amen? But there's a second uh, meaning to that word head. Not only is uh, Jesus the the one who originates the church, but he is also the one who has authority over the church. That's what it means for him to be the head of the church. It means Jesus has the authority over the church. In the same way that my head uh, is the command and control center for my body, okay? If I want to turn right, it starts here, right? I'm gonna tell my body, to turn right and to walk this way. If I wanna wave, I can wave, but it starts here in my head. The head is the command and control center of the body. Jesus, as the head of the church, is the command and control center for the church. That means that he is the authority. Uh, The pastor doesn't run the church, amen? The deacons don't run the church. The church leadership council doesn't run the church. The church members don't even run the church. Jesus is the Lord of the church. That means that he has the rulership not only of creation, but also of the new creation of his his recreated people, the church. This is the way I like to put it. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. Isn't that what 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us? That he is the chief shepherd. Everybody all right over there? All right. He is the chief shepherd of the church. That means he's the senior pastor. There's a reason that I don't use that term, senior pastor, to describe myself. Because I like to make, first of all, I'm too young to be (laughs) called senior pastor. But second of all, I like to just simply make the point that actually Jesus is the senior pastor. He is the one who is in charge. I'm merely an under shepherd. I am a pastor, a shepherd of a church, but I'm an under shepherd of the church. And sometimes pastors are tempted to think otherwise. Sometimes pastors are tempted to think they are really in charge. In fact, uh, Zach Eswine's written a wonderful book about uh, being a pastor. And he talks about pastoral, what he calls pastoral omni-temptations. What he means is that these are temptations that face every pastor. He said, the temptations are to be everywhere, to fix everything, to know everything, and to do it all quickly. And those really are temptations. It's tempting to try to be everywhere. 
uh, Amy and I and our family, we, we want to be with you. We want to come to your connect group fellowships and have lunch and coffee and that kind of thing. But do you know, I can't be everywhere. In fact, there've already been a few connect groups that have said, hey, we'd like for you to come and join us on Monday night. Well, I've already got another commitment on Monday night with another connect group and it's difficult. I can't be everywhere. I, I can't fix everything. That's a real temptation when you're a new pastor to step in and want to try to fix everything. In fact, just in the, the, the month and a half that I've been here as your pastor, I've heard people say things like, you know, pastor, we're just, we're still walking through a season of healing. And there's a temptation as the new pastor to want to come in and say, well, I'm going to heal, I'm going to bring healing. But the reality is I can't do that. God is the healer. It's my job just to love you and care about you and walk with you as God does that work of healing. But it's a real temptation to try to fix everything. It's a temptation to try to know everything. Moberly is a complex church with complex challenges and it's a temptation to try to have the answer for everything. Here's the reality, let me just give it to you. I don't know everything. There's some things I just don't know. Uh, I've been asked several questions, even this week. Hey, pastor, what do you think about this? And I've had to say, I haven't thought about it. And if I do think about it, I still don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. And there's a temptation to do it all quickly, to rush, to speed, uh, to, to fix it all very fast. And th those are temptations that fa face every pastor. But folks, I can't do that. And I can't be that because <clears throat> only Jesus can do that. Jesus is the one who can be everywhere. He is the one who can fix everything. He's the one uh, who knows everything. He is the Lord of the church. It's my job. Listen, pastors have three roles biblically. Pastors have this job, to, to lead, to feed, and to intercede. Okay, that's my role, to lead you. That means just to guide you as a church family to follow Jesus and his will for the church. Okay, to feed you. That, that means it's my job as, as the shepherd of a church to open up God's word and just trust the spirit of God to use the word of God in the lives of the people of God, okay? Because Jesus knows what you need more than I know what you need. And so it's my job to open up the Bible and feed you. And then to intercede, that means to pray and to care for you, okay? Right, isn't this what Acts chapter six says when the early church established deacons, they established deacons to take care of certain practical needs so that the leaders of the church could devote themselves to the ministry of word and prayer, right? And so it's my job to minister to you in word and prayer and to guide you to follow Jesus. The dominant uh, metaphor, listen, for pastors is the, is the word shepherd. And that's really what I am. I'm a shepherd of the flock, not Lord of the church. Only Jesus can be Lord of the church. Pastors are servants not CEOs. We are, we are shepherds and not kings. There is one Lord of the church, and my job is to lead you to follow her Lord, her senior pastor, that is Jesus. My job is to teach you what Jesus wants for the church. And by the way, that means not to, to teach you my opinion of what Jesus wants for the church. I'm called to ground everything that I do in the word of God, to lead us to do what is in Jesus's word, which is the Bible. That's why the Bible is so important to us, right? We wanna know who Jesus is. We wanna know what Jesus is like. We wanna know what Jesus's will is. And the way to find that is not by just, you know, kind of shooting the breeze together and trying to figure that out on our own. Jesus has given us his word so that we can know Jesus's will. Amen? 
And so it's why we read it. It's why we study it. It's why I preach it. It's why we teach it. It's why you try to filter everything that you hear through the word. And if there's something that's unbiblical, you throw it out. If something's biblical, then you, you resonate with it and you submit yourself to it, right? So Jesus is the head of the church. That means he has authority over the church. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, what qualifies Jesus to be Lord of the church? How come he gets to be the authority? Thank you for asking that question. We're gonna see the answer right here in the text, okay? So I want you to see three reasons that Jesus is qualified to be Lord of the church. Here's the first one that verse 18 is going to give us. Jesus is Lord of the church, first of all, because of his resurrection, okay? Let's say that together. He's Lord of the church because of his resurrection, okay? He rose from the dead. That is a radical claim that we make as Christians, that Jesus was a man not only who lived and then died, but who died and then lived. He rose from the dead. Look what it says in verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Simply put, <clears throat> Jesus is qualified to be the head of the church because he rose from the dead. Now, let me just camp out there for a minute because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the central claim of our faith. Now, many people will talk about the cross of Jesus or the death of Jesus as the central claim of our faith, and it is a central claim. But if you don't have the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then the cross of Jesus is meaningless. Isn't that what Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He said, if, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our faith is in what? It's in vain. It's empty. In other words, a, a dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. The cross of Jesus is meaningless without the resurrection of Jesus. If you think about the death of Jesus or the cross of Jesus as God's payment for our sin, the resurrection of Jesus is the receipt. It is the proof that Jesus actually paid in full the entirety of our sin debt. And so everything in our faith rises and falls on this one claim that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the one thing without which none of the rest of what we believe can be true. We, we make the claims that the apostles made, that Jesus isn't merely a good teacher. He isn't merely a moral example. He's not just a great leader in history. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God who became man, who lived a perfect, obedient life that none of us have lived, and yet died on the cross. And he died on the cross not because he deserved to die, but because you and I deserved death for our sin and our rebellion. And Jesus died on the cross to take God's judgment for us for our sin. Those are all wonderful truths, but none of that can be meaningful unless it is also true that, that Jesus was buried and three days later came out the other side of death. But folks, that's exactly what we believe. We believe that Jesus did live that perfect life, died that sacrificial substitutionary death, was buried, but three days later rose victorious over the grave. Here's the way I like to put it. He kicked death in the teeth and rose victorious. Yeah, you can clap about that. That's exactly right, sister. Thank you. He kicked death in the teeth. That means that the grave has lost its power, that death has no victory over us. And, and 
all of what we believe as believers, right, as Christians, rises or falls, it hinges on this one truth. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? If he didn't rise from the dead, then we're wasting our time here. If he did rise from the dead, and I know that's a radical claim to make, I know it's an absurd thing to say, right? Can we just acknowledge it's a strange, weird claim that he died, that he was buried, and that he came back to life. That, that is either false, and billions of Christians for 2,000 years have been wasting their time, or it's true, and it changes everything. A lot of people in our culture will tell you it's false. In fact, in, um, in a 2013 <clears throat> article in that great conservative magazine, The New Yorker, uh, Adam Gopnik wrote this statement. He said, we know that in the billions of years of the universe's existence, there is no evidence of a single miraculous intervention with the laws of nature. Think about that. He's saying not one shred of evidence of anything miraculous ever in billions of years. Now, he's either right or wrong. And he is taking a huge risk to say there's not one shred of evidence of one single miraculous intervention in the laws of nature. Huge risk. Even Richard Dawkins, by the way, the renowned atheistic scholar at Oxford, said that he is almost certain that God doesn't exist. Folks, that's a big almost. Like, I'm almost certain this is not true. What a risk. You have to decide, can you believe it's true or not? This is a a huge claim. It's a strange claim, and it's either false or it's true. But here's the deal. If it is true, then it has huge implications for us. If it is true that God the Son not only lived and died, but died and now lives. He rose from the dead. That has huge implications. Tim Keller, who uh, pastored a church in Manhattan for many years, interacted with a lot of skeptics uh, there in New York. And he said, you know, a lot of people will come up to me and, and talking about the resurrection will say, you know, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I mean, I, I like this part of Christian belief, over here, but I don't think I can accept that. In other words, people are, are fine with some elements of Christianity. People generally say, you know, that part about loving your neighbors, I like that. But this idea about a dead man being buried and coming back to life, I, I struggle with that. And this is how Tim Keller would respond to them. He would say, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he has said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? Right? Why do you care about loving your neighbor if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead? Why care about ethics and morality and righteousness if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? But then Keller says this, look at this, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's really the key question. It's not whether you like this part or like that part. I mean, sometimes we, we have uh, theologians that are Dalmatian theologians. They, they say, the Bible is inspired in spots, and I'm inspired to spot the spots. And they pick and choose the stuff that's palatable and not palatable. So the, the love stuff is great, but the judgment stuff, we're just going to discard this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is the authority. 
If he rose from the dead, he is Lord of the church. And we must submit ourselves to everything he has said. Amen? And so, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Literally, bodily, out of the grave, came back to life. Not just that the resurrection is a metaphor. You know, like that song we sing, he lives, he lives. You know that one? Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me alone. Da, da, da. He lives, he lives. Salvation too in part. You ask me how I know he lives. That is a very sentimental and unhelpful statement. Because if he didn't actually rise from the dead, it doesn't really matter what you feel in your heart. But liberal theologians are happy for you to have a Jesus in your heart, as long as he's not Jesus risen from the dead. Because if he's Jesus risen from the dead, you've got to bow the knee. And that's the point Paul is making. He's Lord of the church because he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, let me just talk about a couple of implications of that statement. Number one, if Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible tells us if we follow Jesus, we will also be raised from the dead. That's what it means right here in verse 18 when it says that he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he is the first of many to come. Think about what that means. It means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, because Jesus went into the grave and came back out of it, the Bible says he's the firstborn. That means he's got younger siblings. That's you and me. It means we'll follow him out of the grave as well. That changes the way we go to funerals. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. When we gather around a casket at a funeral and we put a a person's body into the ground, we grieve. There's real sadness and grief there, but there is deep and abiding hope because we know that the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that one day Christ is going to return, and when Christ splits the sky open, the gravestones will split open as well. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's why I tell people, rent the casket. You're not going to need it forever. The Bible says if you follow Jesus, yeah, you're going to be put in a grave. But one day when Jesus returns, you're going to be raised victorious from the grave as well. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your sting? Aren't you thankful for that? I love the way that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings uh, describes the idea of resurrection. He talks about Gandalf. Let me just nerd out for a second. He talks about Gandalf, the witch, right, the wizard. And the wizard looks like he's dead, but then he, he has kind of this resurrection scene. And Tolkien says it was as if everything sad came untrue. That's what the resurrection means. One day, everything sad will come untrue. Tolkien's buddy, C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he said that when Jesus rose from the dead, death started working backward. It means death is not the end. It means Christians grieve, but not as those without hope. So that's the implication of Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. It means one day I'll rise from the dead. But here's the second implication. It just simply means that because Jesus rose from the dead, he gets to be first place. That's what the text tells us. Look right here in the text. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have, say it with me, first place in everything. 
I told you last week that the, the framework for our lives as believers is very simple. Jesus first. He has first place in everything. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Now, here's the second reason that Jesus is qualified to be head of the church. Not only because he rose from the dead of his resurrection, but Jesus is Lord of the church because of his deity. His deity. Look here in verse 19. For God was pleased. He's given us here a second reason that Jesus is Lord of the church. God is, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. What he's saying here is, just like last week, Jesus is more than mere man. Jesus is nothing short of God himself, okay? All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. He's saying Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. Okay, again, like the resurrection, this is one of those statements. It's either false or it's true. If it's false, we're wasting our time. If it's true, it changes everything. He says, Jesus is God. The fullness of God dwells in him. Now, I want you to just notice that word fullness there for a moment because the, the word for fullness in the original language is the word pleroma. Okay, let's, let's say that word together, pleroma, pleroma. Okay, that's fullness, fullness of deity, the pleroma. In, in the culture that Paul was addressing, this Greco-Roman world, they believed in a plethora of gods. They believed in a multitude of gods. In fact, they believed in 30 deities. Can you imagine that? You remember uh, some places in the, 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 the Greco-Roman world even believed in more than that. Like Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to Athens, to Mars Hill, and he says, I, well, you're filled with gods. They called these gods eons, and there were 30 of them in this complex sort of galaxy of gods. There was a God for, for everything. There's a God of the sea, God of the land, God of the wine, God of the bread, God of the sky, you know, all of these different things. So at the top of that system of gods was a supreme deity. His name was Barbello. Kids, let's say that one together, Barbello. Okay, and this system of gods was called the Pleroma, the fullness of deity. Paul is saying... You have been worshiping this God and that God and this God and that God, but the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. It's not the system of gods. It's Christ alone. Their culture, by the way, was not, I mean, it's very easy to kind of look at the Greco-Roman world and say, wow, they were so backwards and uneducated and stuff like that. We live in the same kind of culture, don't we? We live in a culture very, very pluralistic, right? Uh, you can worship any God you want. Uh, you can worship this God or that God. Doesn't really matter. Just pick a God, any God. We're all heading to the same place anyway. It doesn't really matter who or what you worship as long as you're sincere about it and it works for you, right? That's pluralism. All roads lead to Rome, right? And so it doesn't really matter what's true. That was the Greco-Roman world. Just pick, you can worship this God, you can worship that God. You can find your joy and your satisfaction in this one or that one. And Paul says, listen, if you are looking for joy and satisfaction in all of these other things, you're missing it because it's found only in Jesus. He is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells. I lost my sunglasses the other day. A few months ago, I was looking for them and uh, couldn't find them anywhere. I looked in this room. I looked in that room. I looked in that drawer looked in that desk, checked the car, couldn't find my sunglasses anywhere. 
until I passed by a mirror and caught a glimpse of myself and realized I couldn't find the sunglasses because I was wearing them on top of my head. And if I had just glanced up, I could have seen what I was looking for the whole time. See, here's the reality. Our culture says, if you want joy, if you want satisfaction, if you want pleasure, look here and look there and look here and look there. But here's the deal. You will never find the satisfaction for your soul that you are looking for until you look up and you find it in Jesus. Amen? The fullness of deity dwells in him. That's exactly what he says one chapter later, chapter 2 and verse 9, which we'll look at probably in about three years when we get to it. <laughs> chapter 2, verse 9 says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And here's the implication of that statement. Look at the next verse, verse 10. And you have been filled by him. In other words, God's fullness dwells in Christ and his fullness can fill you. His fullness can fill you in a way that nothing that this world offers can. This world says, hey, come and find joy and satisfaction in relationships or find it in your work or find it in a successful career or find it by accumulating all the stuff and it will satisfy that hunger in your heart. And the reality is it doesn't, does it? It's why you're constantly climbing and hoping that if you just get to that next thing or you accumulate that other toy or you get that perfect relationship you've wanted, that you'll be happy. And then you get it and you're not happy. It's why the suicide rate among CEOs is one of the highest in the country. Because they get to the top and they realize it wasn't what they bargained for. It didn't deliver on its promises. The reality is we are born hungry. We are born thirsty. We are born with desires. And what happens is we try to fill those desires with everything but Jesus, and we find it doesn't satisfy. You know, the worst thing that you can do when you're thirsty is to drink salt water. You only do it one time. It looks like it will satisfy, doesn't it? If you're hot, you're thirsty, and you just see, you know, you're fishing out in the Gulf, and you see that water, you might think it's going to satisfy that thirst, but here's the deal. If you take a drink of salt water, what's it going to do? You'll be more thirsty. That's what happens when you try to fill your life with all this world offers. You will just find that you are thirstier than when you began. You remember Jesus, though, once met a Samaritan woman at a well. And what did he say about himself? He said, I am the water of life. <laughs> if you'll drink the water I give, you'll never be thirsty again. Here's the deal. This world beckons to you and says, come, come find your satisfaction, come find your joy, come find your happiness and what we provide. But it's only Jesus who can give you the water that'll never make you thirst again. Amen? Only Jesus. And so Paul says, <clears throat> we can be filled with the fullness. Blaise Pascal, the, the great French mathematician, said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart. It can't be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator. You can try to put stuff in there to, to try to fulfill it, to try to satisfy that desire. Nothing but God can fill that hole in your heart. But Jesus can fill it, 
because all God's fullness dwells in him and he can fill you with his fullness. Amen? That's why he gets to be Lord of the church. He's God. Here's one third and final reason that Jesus is Lord of the church, not only because of his resurrection and because of his deity. The final thing that we're going to see in verse 20 is that Jesus is Lord of the church because of his saving work. Because of his saving work. It is his work of reconciliation that qualifies Jesus to be the head of his reconciled people, the church. Look at verse 20. It says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Okay, this is God's desire for the nations. It's God's desire for you to be reconciled with you. Okay, that means that an enemy becomes a friend. But here's how it happens. The only way that you can be a friend of God, the only way you can have relationship with God, the only way that you can be reconciled to him is through this last little statement. He does this by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The only way that you can be reconciled to God is through the work of Jesus on the cross for you, shedding his blood to make peace. Amen? Now, let's just break down that statement here for a couple of, a couple of minutes because for Jesus to make peace with God and us by virtue of his blood shed on the cross tells us a couple of things at least. Number one, it tells us that without Christ, we are not at peace with God, right? If Jesus has to die to make peace, then it means without Jesus' death on the cross, we are not at peace. And that's an important word in our day and time that because we live in a culture that says, you know what? You're at peace with God by default. Just by virtue of being human, you're at peace with God. The Bible says it's the opposite, actually, that we are not born friends of God. We are born enemies of God. We aren't at peace with God by default. We are hostile to God by default. Our nature is not that we are basically good. Right? Like when people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? That's the wrong question to ask because it's, it's making some assumptions. It's making the assumption that there are such things as good people. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The way you are born, you are born with a closed fist shaking it in God's face. And so that's what the Bible tells us. We are born enemies of God. We are born sinners. We are rebellious against God. We want, if God says, hey, I want you to live this way, we go like 180 degrees the opposite direction. God says, this is my plan for your life. We say, no, thank you. I'll choose my own plan for my life. And so we're not at peace with God. Peace with God has to be made, and it comes at a cost. And here's the second thing that we we can know about this verse. Not only are we not at peace with God by default, but but to be at peace with God requires Jesus' death on the cross. He makes peace through his blood shed on the cross. The only way, folks, the only way to have peace with God is through the death of Jesus, his saving work on the cross. You see, the resurrection really is the central claim, but the flip side of that coin is the cross of Jesus. And here's what the cross of Jesus is all about. It is God the Father pouring out all of his judgment for our sin on God the Son. 
On the cross, Jesus is dying in our place, receiving the wrath of God that you deserve and I deserve for for my rebellion and your rebellion, right? Every one of us has sinned against God, and we deserve as a punishment for our sin, our just deserts for our sin is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The cross of Jesus is where Jesus steps in front of us and takes the wrath of God on our behalf. All that the all the judgment of God that you deserved and I deserve for our sin, God pours that out on his son. So that all of the justice of God that our sin deserved is fully taken care of by Jesus. So that there is no more judgment left for you. Because Jesus has taken it out of the way. Isn't that good news? Jesus has fully received God's wrath so that all that's left for you and I is friendship. You see, that's the connection. There's peace through the blood of the cross. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. And the result for us, because he received judgment, we have peace. Because he was treated as an enemy, we can be made a friend. That's what reconciliation is all about. We can be restored to God because God the Son took our judgment for us. Reconciliation really means that because of the work of Jesus for you, you can come home to God. You probably have heard the story of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it's really a parable for the gospel. It's a parable of of what God has done to restore us to himself. The story of the prodigal son, if you've never heard it, it just goes this way. A man had two sons. The younger son was ungrateful for the life that he had been given. Didn't love his family like he should. Didn't enjoy the life God had given him like he should. And so he becomes ungrateful and he asks his father to give him his inheritance early which is basically a way of saying, dad, I wish you were dead already so I could have your stuff. And the father, even though wounded in his heart, gives the inheritance to his son. And his son takes all of his inheritance money. He goes to Vegas and he wastes it in what the King James Version calls riotous living, okay? And and he goes and he, he does all this stuff until he's out of money. And he gets desperate. He doesn't have any money, can't pay the bills. He doesn't even have enough money for food. And so he starts digging around in the trash cans in the alley. And he's eating food that is really worthy only for pigs. But there comes a moment, Jesus tells us, where he comes to his senses and he asks this question. I've run so far. I've messed up so much. Could I go home? And if I went home, would my, would my father welcome me back? And he decides to take the risk. He decides to turn around and to go home. And he thinks, well, even if I, even if I just go back, not as a son, but as a slave, maybe I could just work for my dad and at least I could pay the bills. And he goes back, but what he finds when he goes home, what he finds is surprising. His dad 
first of all, is out looking for him. Not just waiting for him to come home, he's out looking for him. But then the second thing, when he sees his dad, his dad doesn't use those four tortuous little words, I told you so. Instead, what does his dad do? When he sees his son, the text tells us that he girds up his loins and runs out and embraces his son. Now, kids, you may say, what does it mean to gird up your loins? Google it. All right. Here's what it means. Here's the short version. It means to hitch up your britches. All right. That's what it means. In that day, you know, they didn't have blue jeans. They would wear these, even men would wear these long cloaks. And to gird up your loins was basically to pick up your man dress so that you could run. And it was, here's the thing, it was a very humiliating thing to do for a nobleman. Nobleman would never do that. But that shows the extravagance of the father's love for the son. He didn't care what people thought of him. He was willing to do something even humiliating so that he could go and run and embrace his son. What happens when he sees his son? He, he puts a, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. He puts a robe around his shoulders. He, he kills the fattened calf and fires up the barbecue. He invites all the neighbors to come to a party. Why? Because the son who was lost had come home. Folks, that's reconciliation. It means no matter what you've done, it means no matter how far you've run, you can come home to God. And when you come home to God, you'll find not a mean old man in the sky who's, who's going to tell you, I told you so. You're going to find a God who loved you so much, he sent his son to die for you. That son, by the way, rose from the grave. And when you come home to God, he'll put a ring on your finger He'll put a robe around your shoulders and he'll throw a party because someone who was lost has been found. A sinner has come home. And this, this gathering this morning, this is just a bunch of sinners who've come home. It's why there's nobody here who's better than somebody else, nothing like that. We're just a bunch of people who were lost and Jesus found us. And we now acknowledge because of his saving work, he gets to be the Lord of the church. Amen? We have much to celebrate as believers. We have much to celebrate. A God who is Lord of the church by virtue of resurrection and Godhood and reconciliation. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior, my prayer is that you would come home to God today. You've been running far and fast. Stop running. Turn around. Come home to God. If you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I'd like to be, here's what you can do. After the service is over, you just go out those back doors. There are decision prayer partners. They're wearing badges so you can identify them. They would love to sit down with you and explain to you how you can have a friendship with God and a relationship with God that'll change your life. If you've never done that before, let today be the day that you come home to God. If you're watching online, you can text MBC to the number that's on your screen. Someone will be in, in, in uh, contact with you. They'll help you understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, I'm gonna invite you to stand. We're gonna sing together. Jesus, we acknowledge your lordship over the church. Help us to be obedient and submissive to your will. Help us to be obedient to you as our authority. We're thankful for who you are and what you've done. Be big in our midst. 
We pray in Christ's name.